Welcome to Unraveling Pink, a podcast tackling gender bias through conversation. I'm Annie Rogaski. This episode is a bit of a departure for this season. As you know, I've been talking with Sam about the man box all season, and we got to the point where we felt like we had fully explored what there was to be explored. So I hope you also feel like you got a full education about the man box. I'd love to hear your thoughts or comments or input or ideas as usual. You can email me at unravelingpink at gmail.com or direct message me on Twitter at unravelingpink. So this episode I actually recorded back in March. This is a conversation with Noah Lemus, who is a friend of mine from college. So we've known each other for almost three decades. And I wanted to share his perspective as maybe a traditional white male, middle-aged man in the workforce and what his experience has been like as gender equality has become more of a thing. You have heard a lot about the experience of women over time and certainly you've heard about Sam's experience, but I wanted to specifically talk with Noah about his experience and some of the observations he's made over time. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. It's a little bit longer than usual, but if it's too long for your commute, you can hit pause and pick it up another time. I hope you enjoy it. Here's my conversation with Noah. I am so looking forward to this conversation, Noah. Perfect, me too. Yep. Yeah. So my, my people, like I said before, my people set me up with the mansplaining hours, so I think there's been some confusion, but uh, <laughs> I will, I'll try to adjust my material accordingly. <laughs> yeah, we've already done the mansplaining episode. We don't need to re- repeat uh, that. Okay. Okay. Well, my whole life is a mansplaining episode, so. <laughs> I was thinking about this since we talked uh, a week or so ago about doing this, and it occurred to me that We've both sort of been in the workplace for about the same amount of time. Uh, give or take a few years roughly. here and there. And I have uh, I've been fighting the gender equality fight for a long time, and I've seen very slow, very incremental progress, but some progress which makes me feel like the workplace has become more hospitable to me as, as time has gone on. And I gathered from our conversation that that may not have been your experience. And I'm curious to hear from your perspective, like how has the workplace changed over, let's just say the last 20 years or so? And what is it like for a white male who uh, is in the workplace to experience those changes? Well, it's so nice for the white male to finally get his uh, time on the floor. No, uh, <laughs> I, I'm joking, of course, but uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to even imagine that we've been in the workforce for 20 years when you phrase it like that. Uh, but, I'm being so conservative. I, yeah, no, I, I know, huh? And so I'm, I'm an interesting study in that I started on my own. As you know, I'm kind of anti-authority, have been my whole life. So I started like down an entrepreneurial path and uh, made my own way and with double birds high in the sky for like the first 12 years of my career, quote unquote <laughs> career. I've often said I really don't have a career. I just have a bunch of these jobs that I've worked for a little while. 
And uh, so for the first 12 years or so, uh, I was the boss. Well, actually, I, I take that back. My wife was the boss because we worked together. Yeah, I was going to so, say. <laughs> yeah, so, so I was the boss as far as everyone else was concerned. Um, and that was kind of the little secret there. So my, my uh, introduction to the workforce would be that uh, my boss was secretly my wife. Uh, but I put a really good front on because this was the times, you know, uh, where I would put the front on that I was actually in charge. And so really what that meant for me back then was barking really loud on the phone at people. So they tried to do what I wanted them to do. And then my wife actually worked really hard up front. Uh, my wife, Rachel, your friend, you know, it sounds so generic that way. Um, but she would work very hard to uh, show everybody how much she had learned about snowboarding, what a technician she was and what an expert she was. And I would invariably come and say, yeah, what she said. But they would really not believe it until I came in and said, yeah, what she said. And so I, I watched that and I watched that unfold actually rather comically. And we developed that into a really good kind of bit where she was a straight man and I was, you know, running with it. So uh, I learned a lot in the early stages about that because our, we had a really weird thing in that our customers weren't even really our customers because ultimately they were, we were running an independent snowboard shop. So the customers actually had to sell what we were selling to them to their parents. So by the time the person with the wallet came into my store, they hated me and they hated snowboarding and they hated everybody. And they just wanted to hurry up about this. And so then they would encounter Rachel, who, you know, at the time, I think even looked younger than she was, which we were, we started that business when we were 24. So that was my introduction. And so I didn't get more conventional until later. And then my last 10 years or so has been a little bit more conventional in the workplace. And that's been more uh, me and management roles. And nobody wants to listen to me anyway. So I, I was, I was ready for uh the idea that I would I would walk away from it all, but I walked away from it all uh, about uh, a year ago with the idea that uh, I had a lot of different scapegoats that I could blame it all on, and uh, ultimately there was probably like a, a 10% sliver of that was, oh my God, get off my lawn. I mean, look at how everything's changing. My God, I feel old. And so uh, I did, I, I'm uh, a weakling in the sense that I just ran away. I didn't choose to embrace it. But I learned a few things before I ran away. So I guess that's where, we, where, where this talk comes in. I ran away, and now I might have something to say. Well, so I really liked what you were saying about um, the dynamic that you and Rachel had with uh, customers. And I, I may compliment you from time to time, and I don't want it to go to your head. But um, I'm uh -oh. impressed that you you observed what you observed about people not really hearing something that she said until you said it, because it happens a lot in the workplace. Um, and I'm also intrigued by the fact that you both as a team use that to your collective advantage, which I, I think is a nice way of turning it on its head. Um, but I'm curious about how you came to observe that and understand what was going on there because I don't think that every man out there really sees that. I mean, I assume Rachel just told you and that's how you learned about it. Right? <laughs> uh, well, honestly, it was the fact that I was uh, not even a great snowboarder. I was just a solid snowboarder who could go out and snowboard before it was really a sport. And so my expertise, if you will call it that, came from the fact that I could ride this stupid thing down the hill and, you know, do all right with it. And so we started, a, we started a store at about that level of expertise. So we were learning along the way. Um, and I was 
dedicating all of my time to snowboarding. And so there wasn't a lot of time to learn the real like particular details around, uh, you know, how wide is the snowboard at its waist and what is this side cut radius and all the technical details that all the really technical people had to know. I just like rode my snowboard, man. And then when I was done with that, I came in, I sold some more snowboards, man. And uh, ultimately my wife was, Rachel was there along the whole time uh, doing the same thing. But our encounters in sales were very different, whereas I didn't have to back anything up with any of that technical crap. I just had to say, this is the one, dude. And that worked. Uh, Rachel had to work really hard to close those sales and bring out technical sheets. And so it was hard not to notice. The benefit of the doubt was so different. And granted, this was a long time ago, but I know that I've seen some of that even in uh, search engine optimization happen, where it's assumed that the more technical things get, then the more a male is the answer. Uh, so I've definitely seen that. It's way better than it was, I think, when Rachel and I first started. But uh, in some ways, maybe it's not much different at all. So I definitely noticed it early because it was in my face. Uh, and then, like you said, we definitely took advantage of it because, you know, we're capitalist uh, opportunists when it comes right down to it. Mm -hmm. So when you saw that later in your career, you're no longer working uh, uh, with Rachel, but you're working with other women. What did you do with that? Did you... Uh, recognize it was happening and try to stop it? Did you educate people? Did you ignore it? Like, how did you react to that um, in later jobs? Oh, I totally booted that one badly. I was terrible. Uh, I could have totally been better and I didn't in part because of my nature, my personality. Sometimes I'm just a defiant asshole. And so I saw some of that stuff shaping up and I just really tried to keep all of it at arm's length and pretend like I didn't see it. And Basically, uh, there's, as I've told you before, so this is an introduction on Unraveling Pink to the theory of Noah Lemus, there's two kinds of people in this world. There's aggressive and passive aggressive. And so I think the, you know, the first basically uh, 35 years or so of my life was nothing but aggressive. And then I discovered the whole world was tooling me along the way with passive aggressive and playing me like a fool. So I was like, oh, well, let's play that game. So now I can be passive aggressive with the best of them, though I've only developed this skill in the last 10 to you know, 15 years. So I'm still working on it. I'm not as advanced as many others out there. Um, but the point is, is I embraced, uh, I embraced maximum uh, factor 11 passive aggressive when it came to gender politics in the office. And uh, there was such a combination of people making incorrect assumptions and then people's own insecurities magnifying that and then the output was so ridiculously convoluted that nobody was right anymore and I just stepped away from a lot of those things. I really struggled to uh, mediate or kind of like arbitrate these uh, the gender battles that were happening in the company that I was in and it was bad uh, and I didn't know how to deal with it so I just put my fingers in my ears and pretended like I didn't know that that was happening. So focusing on the period of time when you were not an entrepreneur, but you were working for someone else. Uh, what did the work dynamic feel like? How did it change? Like, was there a point when you were pretty comfortable with how things played out in the workplace and then there was some evolution to something that was intolerable and pushed you into passive aggressiveness? Um, or did you just like get sick of it? Is it just that you were in it for a long time or did something change? The best way to put it is I, I, I don't, I'm not bitter about it. I just feel like my particular guy, mid, like literally 50-year-old, like I check all the boxes, right? I'm a 50-year-old white dude, type A personality. Like you could just keep drilling down and I probably fit them all. And I totally get that. 
And the way that I'm received now, just like visually, when I walk into somewhere is different than it was 25 years ago. So I can tell that the energy is different around someone that looks and acts and feels like me. And so I know that my time has run its course in the workplace almost in a way. And so you could either be at that point, you could fight that. And then you could just be the asshole that fights that. Or you could be like, well, you know, maybe I can just go like work on some other things that I like to do and be a hermit. And some people's personalities, that'll work. It works for me. I can go and find my own things to do and still make money and uh, figure out a way to not have to really lean on anybody but the people close to me. Uh, but not everybody has that option. And so... Um, I guess that's my biggest worry as I, as I quote unquote, leave the conventional workplace. There's almost like this uh, cold civil war around gender politics in offices. And I think that uh, nobody wants to talk about it, but there could be some constructive paths to talk about it. I'm curious about something you said, which was like you would walk into a room and it would feel different. And I can say as a woman, I've walked into many rooms that were all men and I feel something different than I suspect the men who walk into that room feel. And I'm curious what it feels like. Like you, you, it sounds like in, in that particular workplace, you were the minority and that you are, as you say, checking all the boxes of, of white privileged male, sorry, uh, older white male, cisgender. Um, and I so, that one. yeah, I'm helping you out. So Thank if you. it's, um, if, if it, so I'm just curious about what you feel when you walk in that room. What does it feel like for someone who sits in your shoes or stands in your shoes? Uh, there's a giant asterisk on this because it's like pre-35-year-old 35, pre 35 Noah Lemus. He didn't feel anything when he walked in the room. He just, ah, here I am. Right? And then like, so self-awareness is a super recent phenomenon for me. So this whole feeling of an energy of in a room. That's like I'm only since I got a little old and like had a daughter and stuff do I'm thinking about those kinds of things for real. Before that, I just burst in a room and like literally maybe when I was 35, I started wondering, oh, remember that one room? And there was that one person. God, now that I think about it, they probably didn't like me, but they didn't say anything. <laughs> and, you know, like I never thought about that at the time because I yeah. guess because I own the rooms or guys like me own the rooms. But I don't actually it's more complicated than that. It's just being young and dumb. It's a, a huge difference for me just looking this part, if you will, because I don't feel this part. I really don't, but I know how I look. So perception is reality. So here comes the white guy, middle-aged guy, and that bald spot on the back. And this whole thing, you just like, you know, and I'll got some dad jokes for you. I'm just going to come fill it in. <laughs> and right. And so there's no way around that. And so it's just received differently. And it's almost like there's, it's like a dad joke might be the best way to put it. Oh, dad just walked in the room. Let's get on our best behavior. And I'm not a guy who was ever on my best behavior. And I don't walk into any room on my best behavior. And so the fact that all of a sudden I see in other people's eyes that I'm the reality check for, oh my God, let's all be adults now. Uh, that's weird to begin with. And part of that dynamic existed because of in search engine optimization, I was in a business development role kind of uh, translating, if you will, to the typical other white dude in the, in the boardroom uh, from the younger set doing the search engine optimization, the more technical work that people didn't understand. So for me, a lot of it started with kind of age considerations. Uh, I was the oldest guy in any given company I worked in in that industry. Um, and so that, that started things in a weird, in a weird way. So not am I just, not only am I just the oldest guy in the country, in the company, now I'm everything else, all those boxes that we mentioned before. So I think I, it was a little bit skewed from that, but ultimately that was the one is, oh my God, like, uh, 
I, I felt that nobody acted as though they would with their friends around me. And I don't know when that actual change, I couldn't go back in time and say at that moment, that's when that changed. But I feel it now and I didn't used to feel it then. So sometimes all of us can have this perception that we bring maybe unfairly. And so if nothing else, ironically, maybe it's helped me understand that a little better, right? So, uh, but I, I would argue a lot of that's just age. And I think that might be the unfortunate thing about uh, men in general is that most people aren't, most men aren't going to be really a, any factor of self-aware until they're, I mean, if they're the most mature in the guy, guy in the world, maybe 32. Fortunately, I spared the world. I wasn't like some attorney or accountant or something who like went in and got an early start and all of a sudden had that management position at 29 or 30 and was punching above my weight because I would have been such a jerk. I don't know if that answers the original question. The fact <laughs> is, is the original question was, tell me about walking into that room and I don't understand the room well enough is what I understand about the room now is I, all I know is I can tell it's different. I still can't tell you what the room says about me or anybody else, but I know that walking into that room, we all bring, am I the oldest guy? Am I all of these guys? It, whatever the check boxes are, but also what is my individual level of insecurity? Because um, when I was younger, the thing that I brought into the room the most was this false confidence that mm -hmm. that worked really well because I didn't, I was never checking myself or thinking about it. Only when I got older and got more self-aware and maybe as a result of that slightly more insecure that then walking the room was a big deal. So I didn't even think about walking in the room until I was aware that that's something to think about. So there you go. <laughs> that's the long-winded way of saying, I don't know, why are you asking me? <laughs> I'm wondering if, the the change was your self-awareness and i agree with you that i think with age comes wisdom and self-awareness for for anyone who's paying attention um but i wonder if it was your uh, self-awareness that that made that room feel different or if i think there has been this shift in the workplace to a more PC or, um, you know, trying to be aware of who's in the room and be more inclusive, which I think is a good thing. But I do think it has resulted in some measure of censorship or self-censorship, which in many cases I think is results in a better, more um, comfortable workplace for everyone. But I think in other cases uh, results in people not sharing ideas that they might otherwise share because they feel like they can't be themselves or they can't speak up uh, in a way that's comfortable for them. So I'm curious, is, do you observe that as a change in you or how people perceive you or a change in the workplace? Definitely some elements of both. I definitely bite my tongue in, in professional aspects more than ever before, but also more than other people I found. I definitely err on the side of uh, being overly cautious. And in so, in so doing, actually, that completely stifles who I am because one of the things that I do really well in the workplace is, is kind of break up the seriousness and bring some levity to just about anything, and like no matter what the situation is. Um, and so maybe it just says something about I got a bad sense of humor and I can't adapt, but um, <laughs> I, I've had trouble knowing, okay, where, you know, some things seem universally funny. Other things, not so much. And so then it's the moment you start weighing those things, then nothing's funny because, you know, what's the old joke, what's the most important part of comedy is timing, right? And so all of a sudden my timing's off if I'm thinking about what I'm thinking about. And so the, the workplace has definitely changed. And there's no doubt that guys like me have changed. Um, 
because of that. But also I think that, and, and I've changed, there's no doubt about that, but I think also I left over kind of one straw that broke the back and it was very closely gender related and ultimately I just acquiesced. One element of that is the same thing that an old guy like me would say about anybody of that generation, because I really am talking generationally and not gender right now, is I felt that there was a certain grab at, for lack of a better term, entitlement. There was a, a grab at titles and duties and things that they just weren't ready for. And it didn't matter what the gender was. That was what they wanted. And so when we got into those those roles of, well, this is why you're not ready for, say, senior consultant yet, or whatever the title they were pursuing was. On the one hand, great for them. They need to advocate for themselves in the corporate world because no one else is going to do it for them. God knows I know that. And so when it comes right down to it, I have to be envious and, and respectful of the fact that they have to come to me and advocate for themselves. But then also, if you come immediately to me and you advocate for yourself in a way that kind of tears at the whole company and really puts people up against each other, then we've just turned this, uh, we've turned this, there's so much animosity to something that should be simple that then everybody ends up holding it against each other and then you get into the passive aggressive crap. And so that was essentially where I found myself is wading into that passive aggressive crap so consistently that I was like, no, this just isn't gonna change. I'm not gonna change it this way. No one's gonna change me this way. And so um, <clears throat> as a result of the workplace has changed, I've changed, and the expectations of a new generation coming in have changed, rather than dig my heels in and be like, hey, no, this is the way it needs to be done. You need to wait your turn. Like, I'm just not going to do that. that. Ultimately, they're going to learn that they needed to wait their turn when they get the turn that they're not ready for. Well, I do think that the generational piece of it ties into a lot of the gender issues that I look at. It, it's hard to um, tie anything to just gender or just generational differences. I think there's a whole mix of things that have changed in the workplace. You mentioned something when we first started talking that I wanted to come back to, which was when things started changing and you started moving to the passive-aggressive defense mechanism, you mentioned that um, something to the effect, I'll paraphrase and you can correct me, but something to the effect of having conversations about this could have helped. And that's something that I care very much about. And it's what I do with this podcast is try to help people have conversations about gender issues that are often difficult to have. And I'm very encouraged by, hopefully I didn't totally misconstrue that, but you having that thought of um, wanting to talk about ways to make it better. And I think until we have men and women talking about the different strengths and weaknesses they bring to the workplace and how they interact with each other, it's not going to get better. And I, I do think it's important that we not have every white male 50-year-old leave the workforce because diversity is not just women get, gaining equality with men. It's the whole mix of, of everything. And... Um, perspectives generationally, perspectives politically, all of that is very charged and difficult to, to navigate in the workplace. But I think very important to broadening all of our perspectives and finding ways for us to talk and interact more constructively for the better good. And you might call me a hippie now. I've been called a hippie plenty of times, but 
But that's kind of where I see the 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 need right now, where we need to be going is towards more conversation and finding bridges between different groups that may not naturally coexist. Absolutely. And I think, ironically, <clears throat> what I've noticed is, let's say that you're a young woman coming into, you know, um, a, tech, a tech firm. That's probably the best example, right? Uh, and there's a certain defensiveness that's totally understandable coming into that because I've, I've walked into those environments and I'm, in, I'm intimidated being a 50-year-old guy just because I don't know the certain tech angle that these other people know because I'm selling it, not necessarily doing it. So I can understand just the look down your nose technically. Uh, I, I've, I've received enough of that to understand that. And it must be magnified tremendously by gender and being, being young. But I think also what's forgotten about maybe from the perspective of the young woman coming into that situation is, like I mentioned earlier about perception being reality, she may look at someone like me and that's um, almost automatically we're at odds if she's going to view things a certain way. Mm -hmm. But if she's not going to view those things that certain way, then like if really, if really the environment in the corporate world is intimidating and male and alpha and anything that you could stereotype it as, what better mentor in a way could you have than someone who can all essentially translate that right out of the gate and be like, mm -hmm. that part's just, no, ignore that. And like the stuff that I had to learn on my own, it's not like I understood that just because I was a man. I understood that because I had good mentors. You know, uh, sometimes like especially in negotiations and stuff, you could swear someone really meant something that they didn't. And you have to figure that out. And that's not necessarily a gender thing. That's sometimes inexperienced thing. And I think for that young woman, and, and again, you have to advocate for yourself because no one's going to do it for you. But the, the, the care that you need to take there is, am I, am I at odds with that because of gender? Am I at odds with that because of age? Am I at odds because of that personality? Is there, is there a, a, dis, you know, a disparity in EQ? Like weigh things to find out why there might be at odds instead of thinking that person must think that. Because I can tell you a million times when I was working in these positions where that wasn't what I was thinking, but that's certainly the way that things were, were maybe even painted. And, and that wasn't. And, in other words, I guess like if you want to be a really good asshole, the best way to learn how to be an asshole is from someone who's been an asshole for a long time. And so, and that's like obviously a super exaggerated version of it, but we don't need to be at odds, but I think we are. And so I think sometimes in some ways, a young woman coming into the workforce who needs to have a chip on her shoulder, honestly, she needs to have a chip on her shoulder. I get that. But sometimes like there's people out there that are willing to adjust that chip and help you put that chip on the right side of the right shoulder or whatever mixed metaphor I want to butcher here. <laughs> um, you know, but there, there are people that want to do that and want to help. And I think in the same way that I can't go around assuming that someone's coming in and they're only trying to do this for this ulterior motive or anything like that. Like I, there, there is no grand Machiavellian, uh, like white male thing going on out there. Everyone is just trying to survive on the, on the job. And there's a proportionate number of assholes of equal gender. But then I think you do get all of these other things at play, which is the, the generational factors, the gender factors, the experience factors. Everybody, when they walk into any given room, they bring in their own insecurities with it. And so what else you combine with those insecurities defines a lot of, of what you're going to get out of that experience in that room. And so there's no way to look at those rooms without an idea that there is, there's gender disparity. 
but at the same time, not everything is going to be in there. And there might be a, an advocate for somebody that they don't realize that that person is an advocate. And so I guess that's, uh, you know, my soapbox for a moment would just be like, make sure that you're not moving the men- your best possible mentors aside in your pursuit to get what you want quickly. Um, because there's actually some people out there that could be your greatest ally, but by assuming they weren't from the outset, you never got to get on the same page. That is my soapbox, I guess. I like that. That's, um, I, I definitely think mentoring is so critical, especially women having male mentors. And I had probably the majority of my mentors were male. And you do get a different perspective of the workplace and what works and what doesn't, which is really important. I also think the the generational differences, um, well, I, I think both with gender and with generation, uh, generational differences, having mutual mentors is really important. Like for uh, the gender equation, um, sort of cross-mentoring, like helping men understand the female experience because there's a lot more women in the workplace now and everything will work better if we understand each other. And generationally, I think there's a lot of learnings that us olds can learn from the youngs and vice versa if we're open to it. Um, And I really like the not judging the book by the cover that you were talking about because I've known you for a long time. And even though we like to spar and argue and debate, um, I know you approach things from a good place and you're a good person, but I could imagine meeting you (laughs) for the first time and being intimidated and thinking, why is this guy so angry? Or, you know, there's, you, you have a persona that you put out there as do I, and plenty of people think I'm a bitch when they meet me for the first time. Um, that it, it takes some getting to know people, um, before you understand where they're coming from. And, and I do think that if you can get past initial impressions and get to know the people that you work with, you will find really good mentors, whether they're older or peer mentors or younger, who you can learn from and they can learn from you. So I, I, I'm glad that you raised that. You, uh, you actually phrased it in a really good way, which is persona. I, I've, I've talked with my son a lot about this stuff because... Uh, we won't go on a side tangent about baseball, but persona in baseball is is a really, really important, but not really talked about at all thing. And I think it you can extrapolate that into corporate world, into just about anything. And we all have our persona that we take into any given situation, and we have different personas for different activities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, baseball Noah Lemus is the biggest asshole in the world, and the, boy, I would not have any problem getting confirmation there. You know, and and family Noah Lemus is the nicest guy in the world, and you know, that that's just we all do that, and so we do that in in work as well. And you know, that's again, that's a point to when I was young, I didn't know that. I didn't. I thought that's who I was, but that wasn't who I was in the workplace. I was that was my persona that I took to work, and as soon as I left. I dropped that and I was this other persona. And so I think it's really important to understand that is not only do we all do it, but everybody we're interacting with work is doing it as well. And how do you kind of crack that hardened veneer to understand who's there and what, you know, because I think, and, you, you, and thank you, by the way, for telling me that I'm, you know, most likely probably in the right place, in the heart in the right place type of thing, paraphrasing, of course. Um, but I think actually most people are, I mean, maybe I'm just a total jerk, but most people are. And I think 
we get where we get in trouble is when we make the assumption that most people aren't, and then when we start interacting with people on the basis that most people aren't. Because I think there's more common ground for most people than they than they realize there is. Mm-hmm. You could bring people from such different backgrounds and such different current experiences and such different outlooks, politics, you name it. And if you really could get past that that persona, which is a great word for it, then people could actually find their common ground pretty easily. But it's really hard to get people to do that. And that was one of my frustrations is the the more you lock in on, oh, I just, that person walked in the room and they're this to me, and then I adjust the way that I am, then that person does feel that energy. And then there's this kind of cycle that's difficult to control. Uh, Whereas if we could actually have an honest conversation from the outset, then that wouldn't happen. The initial misunderstanding wouldn't happen. And more people would be on, you know, maybe I'm a hippie now. What'd you do to me here? Um, (laughs) Yes, I think that's true. And I, I tend to have strong opinions and I make the mistake of judging people the moment I meet them. And I think we all do. I mean, there's a certain amount of, you know, our historical threat assessment. Like we go in and we meet somebody, we, we assess, you know, are they friend or foe? Uh, a little more nuanced when we get into workplace. But um, I have been really, really wrong about people. And I try to hold on to that when I meet people and have a negative reaction but it's hard. So I hired a woman on this job specifically because she checked these boxes and I knew it would be good for her. And I thought I found like an absolute gem. And so I hired her and we worked together for three months. And admittedly, when I hired her, I, you know, maybe went a little above my pay grade to tell her that if things went well in the first three months, we'd get her a raise. And I did that because I couldn't do that and my bosses approve of it, but I couldn't get her hired without doing it. And I knew ultimately that I had enough equity, if you will, to be able to go back and say, hey, let's make this happen. And so if, if she was worthy, I would push for her. And if she wasn't, then I, you know, don't let the door hit you. It's cutthroat, but that's the way it goes. And so uh, I did not hire her on false pretenses, but I did hire her without the ability to give her that raise my own self. Uh, so after three months, to her credit, she came to me and said, you're going to give me that raise we talked about, right? Uh, and I said, yes, I am, because I told you. And she was working out well. She really was. She's really talented. And so I said, yes, we're going to make this work. I said, but here is exactly where I'm at. And I laid for her exactly, which was, that was like a Tuesday or a Wednesday of one week. And we had our company retreat and leadership meeting the next, starting the next Monday. So I explained to her exactly where I was and that on Monday I would take that up with the team and that we would spend some of our time at the corporate retreat and leadership meeting talking about her raise and that I was her advocate. We would make this happen. And so we left that meeting. Everything was in great shape. I thought it was wonderful. Uh, I showed up for the corporate retreat and the first thing that we had to tend to was this woman had gone and written just a scathing attack on Glassdoor that just made us look awful. And so I thought we had had an agreement that didn't include ripping us all on uh, Glassdoor and telling, the CEO, telling us that the CEO, you know, she had no confidence in the CEO and gender issues this and technical issues that. And basically she just vented about everything that she thought was wrong with the company. And so I actually felt that that was a breach of our trust. It was a breach of what we had talked about. Uh, it was not the way you go about your business. And ultimately, it took your laundry and put it out publicly and made not only us look bad, but made her look really bad too. It's under her name. Um, and so I started the company retreat and I just said, you know, I'm sorry, I'm done. I want to fire her. Uh, and 
I was the resistance was there that we couldn't fire over it. Uh, and in large part, honestly, the resistance was there because she had made those exact points and it would look terrible to fire her on the heels of making those exact points. And so uh, touche, as they say, I guess the game was different than I thought it was. And so it was kind of at that moment, it was like, okay, I have this choice to make. Either I can recognize who I've got around me and I can engage them in the old way and, and we're in a competition now. Uh, or I can realize that, you know, this isn't going to work because ultimately I am, uh, I have no real recourse for anything that happens. And so I'm not, uh, I'm not a manager from a, from a leadership perspective in like classic administration perspective, but if that's the way people go to get their work done, then I'm obviously not a leader in a, in a mentoring or, you know, more traditional team type of leadership role either. And so I just realized right there, there's really nothing that's going to change about this. Uh, and in the meantime, there was some toxicity going around the work, uh, the work environment just because of what had happened, basically. Because then the, the, suddenly she gets the raise, uh, the glass door disappears, and everything's mm -hmm. peachy keen again. And, in my, and that was my entire position, is you're going to show people that we reward the worst possible behaviors. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, and then you've got someone basically, you know, I mean, walking around with a skin suit of the former company on. Uh, and it just didn't look good and, and it wasn't a company I wanted to be a part of and I tried to tell people why there was a difference between that uh, you know and, and what it was originally tried to be painted out as and there was just no winning there was a, it was a no-win battle in the sense that the company couldn't win the individuals couldn't win the industry couldn't win uh, and so I just kind of thought okay and so I just went about uh, I basically went about a purposeful uh, I'm going to engage passively, aggressively, because I know I have a bad case of, uh, am I allowed to say this on, on, on Unraveling Pink? I have a bad case of uh, resting bitch face. And so when, when I just choose to not even turn the corners of my mouth up slightly, I'm the biggest asshole in the world immediately. And I'm aware of this. This is part of me being self-aware. And so like literally I have to, if, I, if I've not shaved and I don't smile, forget about it, right? So I just milked that. I milked that for my last three months on the job and I was super passive aggressive and I let my resting bitch face prevail. And everybody's, oh, oh my God, what's wrong? Nothing's wrong. I'm just taking care of my business and making sure that my silo was taken care of. And I did that for the last three months that I was there and then I moved on and I knew that that's no way to solve anything. But at the same time, there was... It, it was such a no-win situation that it almost felt as though that's my only chance at prevailing. And after all, I am a type A win. doesn't matter whether the, the gender or race or ethnicity or background or what have you, that like we need to adjust what type of personality that we let take. Because I, mem I mentioned earlier about when I was a certain age, not even knowing what, the, what was going on in the room, just going in and, and doing that. Well, the, the, ten, the tendency for most people is to let that person come into the room and be that person. Then they quietly go yeah. away with an opinion of that person. But nobody ever says, hey, dude, your strong personality doesn't actually fit what's going on here. Why don't you make an adjustment? No one ever does that, right? Yeah. And so everybody that is willing to do that needs that, that kind of self, that, that kind of check by other people because most people aren't going to check themselves. The, young, the younger, the more that's the case. I'm an ageist, apparently. I didn't realize that until we started talking. <laughs> So I agree that the, the workplace, what's valued in the workplace needs to change. And I don't think it's a gender issue. I don't think it's a, I don't think type A is necessarily going to be top dog forever. Um, and the reason I don't think that is, there's been a lot of research in the last few years around um, what they call feminine 
style and masculine style of, let's say, leadership or management styles. And it's not male or female, it's masculine or feminine. Like you might be, um, have a masculine approach to how you communicate something and yet have a feminine approach of how you collaborate. And what they're finding is that the traditionally feminine traits are really good for um, setting up work environments that work for the largest amount of people and result in high productivity and efficiency and all of this, things like collaboration and, and teamwork. And so I think these masculine, feminine leadership styles can evolve and can be learned to a certain extent. But what I've been seeing is this push towards um, not eliminating masculine uh, leadership traits, but incorporating more feminine leadership traits. And I think getting to a place where the expectations of leaders are not just that you're a type A alpha male, but that you are a strong leader who also is collaborative and rewards teamwork and is inclusive, like that can motivate a larger group of people and also create a work environment that I think is more constructive and inclusive for a broader group of people. As time progresses, if there are fewer of folks like you in the workplace, what will the rest of us miss out on? What will we lose from not having, like what have we lost from not having you or someone like you in the workplace? Because you have opted out at this point. And uh, I, yeah, I think I, there's I, a loss, but I'm curious what you think the loss is. Uh, in my individual case, which is the only thing I can speak to, I think you lost someone who understands the team element and really enjoys the team element that you have to have to build a successful company. And so any, especially in a startup environment, uh, the camaraderie and team is really, really needed. And I maybe overemphasize it because of a, a ball sports background, but I think team is super important. And I think that uh, you, you're losing that uh, old fashioned team element where I do have your back. And uh, I don't know that anybody's got anybody's back anymore. Uh, and so, you know, just like with, with the anecdote that I told about, I, I really was headed to go get that raise. And I really was making that fight. And, but you can't believe that. If you don't believe I have your back, then you have, I don't blame you. You have no reason to believe that I'm telling the truth if you assume that I'm not. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's really that team concept of, uh, I don't, if I, went, if I went into any other job right now, like a more conventional corporate job, I would basically walk in with the idea of like, how can I build the coolest, best team possible? That's really the out, outlook that I have. The, the team part is the funnest part, actually. It's the only fun part of work, right? Everything else sucks. And so, like I used to tell people we had, uh, you know, drinks, you know, little uh, stereotypical drinks on Friday. We're the tech world, man. Beer o'clock or whatever. You're not even supposed to call it beer o'clock. You literally are supposed to call it drink 30 or something because we don't want people to think they have to have a beer. Uh, so yeah, I mean, not that I'm bitter, uh, you know, but those kinds of things are just a little bit strange. And I think I tried to tell people, listen, my beer 30 doesn't start at five o'clock. It starts at four because I'm not so presumptuous to believe that you want to stay here 
when you're done working because actually this place sucks and it's your job. But if I do it at four o'clock and you have the option and then you stay here for that, we can actually build some camaraderie here. And I think it was too often where people are like, oh yeah, you know, I, 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 was, I just jokingly started calling it mandatory fun because I gave up on the idea that anybody was going to say, oh yeah, I see what he's trying to do here and he's trying to make something really cool. You know, uh, and, a, and a great example, and this will make me sound old and I totally get that, but we set up this new office and I put literally, I counted it up at the end. There was seven different ways to make coffee in the kitchen of this office. I mean, if you wanted to do the K-cup, you could do that. I mean, we got the old press. I mean, you could do, you could get as artisanal as you wanted making your coffee. Like you could cold, you could bring a straight pipeline from Brooklyn and, and bring your cold brew pipe in there. I mean, we had everything and still they had to leave and go get their coffee somewhere else. And nobody really wanted to understand from me. There's like, you know what? You guys all making coffee at the same place at the same time and hanging out and talking is actually pretty good for us. But they yeah. just didn't. They'd be like, go, not only did they go spend their $10 on their damn coffee, but there's no team there, you know? Yeah. And then they come back and they don't know what's going on because they didn't, you know, talk around. Here's the old, mm -hmm. the water cooler. Yeah. I got to say we that my guy smiley face. Talk around the water cooler. <laughs> We, we have about 10 ways to make coffee, too. And, and that, that's occurred to me that there is, like, you have this group of people that grows in the kitchen as you're waiting for the coffee to brew or the pour over to pour over or what have you. And, and there have been debates about the best way to make the coffee and the grind size and the beans and all this stuff. Right. And, and you can bond over that. And actually, coffee is one of the things that people can actually bond over except for people who drink tea and I don't understand that but so I tried um, to bring yerba mate into the scene and they didn't even want to do that I think the gourds do disgusting for people to share and oh it's cooties you know <laughs> oh yeah we're an hour and 29 minutes in that's impressive I didn't know what I, I didn't know I built a man's plane for this long this is awesome I think that's a great place to end it now this is this okay. is good I think um dang it I think having these kinds of conversations and and talking to people with slightly different perspectives. It's helpful that we have some common ground, but we found that common ground over time. And I think that makes it yeah. easier to talk. And then I think the unfortunate takeaway for your guests here today is basically like, God, even the guys we would consider allies are still kind of a little bit of an asshole. In <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, it's good for everybody to know. And I, I try to bring my genuine self as much as possible. That everyone is a complicated human being with different uh, aspects of their personas. So none of us are perfect. Well, speak for yourself. I mean, thank you. You're right. And I uh, agree with you. And thanks for having me on the show. Is that what I'm supposed to say? Yeah, I don't know how to. That's I've perfect. Never, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, as always, for listening.